Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. I'm Ed Bacon, the Interim Rector, here inviting you into a very tender and important conversation today about depression and suicide. Um, I want to talk about why we're having this conversation. Then I want to briefly introduce uh, my conversational partners, and then each of them will introduce themselves vis-a-vis -vis the issue of um, depression and suicide. Uh, but a little narrative about why we're doing this now. Um, sadly, this past Saturday night, one of our colleagues, one of our priest colleagues in the Diocese of Atlanta uh, died by suicide. And the bishop, uh, it happened on Saturday night, the bishop went to St. Peter's Rome and preached that next morning, that very next morning, and started a process of pastoral care to the rector and to the parish, and also sent word to all of us clergy in the diocese that we would have a Zoom meeting with him on Monday morning. We did, it was a very meaningful time, gave us space to have our own feelings and also to have feelings as a community. And then um, while we were in that meeting, I texted Elizabeth Shiles Cappy and Horace Griffin, my priest colleagues and the staff at St. Luke's, and said, let's have our own Zoom meeting in just a second when this is over. And we did that. And it was very helpful to me, and I think to them, to give space to um, feel our own sadness and sense of loss, and also to tell one another stories about our own experience with depression and suicide. And each of the three of us has been touched very much by that. And while we were together, uh, we concocted this idea that we would film this conversation tonight, this is happening on Tuesday night, and that we would put this into the slot on Sunday morning as our forum. And it just so happens that September is Suicide Awareness Month. And I just got off of a meeting with the vestry and they were very encouraging of our doing this. And one vestry member said, Ed, we, we think you ought to do this once a year, that, that we at St. Luke should be doing this once a year. Because it is important and, and it does bring up such deep feelings. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a, a full conversation. It's going to be a conversation. It's not going to be kind of a panel with presentations. They're going to interrupt me and tell me what we need to be doing. But let me simply um, introduce everybody quickly from my perspective, and then I'm going to ask them to go around again and talk a little bit about their own experience with this issue. So I've mentioned Elizabeth Shiles Caffey, our Senior Associate uh, Rector for uh, Education and Worship. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth, if you'll just say something Thank so you. we can see your face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, Thank you. And then Horace Griffin, who is our um, associate priest, uh, associate rector for pastoral care and community uh, ministries. Horace, thanks for being with us. Uh, good morning, St. Thank Luke's. You. Thank you. And uh, the first person who came to my mind was Dr. Lisa Boswell, good friend, member of, of St. Luke's for quite a while, uh, EFM uh, mentor, and 
in her capacity right now, she's a physician with a psychiatric practice here in Atlanta. And uh, she's one of my go-to friends to talk over all sorts of things having to do with pastoral care and mental health. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ed, for including me. Yes. And I really thought it was important to get somebody from TAC. Uh, the Training and Counseling Center has been established at St. Luke's, and it's more than 40 or 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And it, what, it was designed to be available for both the parish and the city, which is a kind of a brand of St. Luke's to be available for both the inner core, urban core of the 21st century, and then it was the 20th century, and also the parish. And I, I talked with our director and she said, oh, you must have Nanisha. So it's very, very wonderful that we have with us Nanisha mont -Renaud. And thank you very much, Nanisha, for being with us. Thank you, Ed, so much. I really appreciate being here. It's an honor. It's really quite great. And I had to have my buddy, my buddy of the soul, Steve Austin, who I met only after I retired in California and moved to Alabama, met him at a party, and uh, then came and spoke at a small little uh, house church gathering. He and his wife were there, but quickly learned that he himself had attempted suicide and had to spend time in a hospital, and, as a res and he was a pastor when that happened, and has given his life over to helping people talk openly in a healthy, homemaking way about this whole arena of the human journey. So I'm thrilled that Steve Austin has agreed to be with us from Alabama. My friend, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Honored to be here. Thank you. So now you, you see our conversation partners. And now I think it's very important before we get into any kind of agenda for each person to take just a minute to talk about their own experience with this part of the human journey. Um, Elizabeth, do you mind if we start with you? Sure. Um, so I can share a little bit about um, how it's impacted my own family. Um, my father's youngest brother uh, committed suicide when I was five years old. Um, sorry, I just did it, committed, died by suicide when he was five years when i was five years old um he wrestled with his own sexuality and growing up in the deep south um in a small town in mississippi um uh, even though my father was very supportive of him um it was uh, it seemed the choice that he um, needed to make um, and um, he was a beautiful artist and his artwork is in my house and in each of my um, siblings' houses. We all have parts of David with us um, and carry him with us. Um, and uh, actually two weeks before my ordination to the priesthood, um, my sister-in-law died by suicide. Um, leaving behind um, two nieces by marriage and a biological niece. Um, 
they were my nieces, leaving behind two children by marriage and, um, and her own daughter. Um, and, uh, and I have journeyed alongside um, my three nieces as um, each year we mark that and remember Heather and celebrate the gift she was and um, how she formed them and loved them and continues to be present for them. Thank you, thank you. Horace, let's turn to you, please. Thank you, Ed. Um, I can share about my uh, family and our being touched by suicide of my older brother. My older brother was in Vietnam War in the 1970s. And as much progress as we've made around mental health in the 2000s, as most of you know, in the 1970s, we were not, we didn't have the language of PTSD and the resources to help uh, those men and women who came back and were haunted and treated badly from that terrible war. My brother, my father said that he was never the same once he came back. And one night when, while I was still in middle school, we received a call that his car had been placed, he had driven his car on the railroad tracks in my hometown, Stark, Florida, and was killed by Amtrak. So he died by suicide and all the evidence shows that there was no attempt for him to get out of the car. And there was a hearing afterwards. The conductor said that, that there was blowing for the car to move in there was no attempt for him to get out of the car. So that was very devastating. I was very young and we just didn't have the kind of resources to deal with that. So it really impacted my family uh, years ago. This was 1975. So my impact with that early death or death when I was very young led me, was one of the reasons I chose to be a chaplain at the VA hospital in Johnson City, Tennessee. I could not help my brother, but I felt I could be there for so many veterans who continue to deal with issues around PTSD and thoughts of suicide. Thanks, Horace. Dr. Boswell, may we go to you and ask you to talk a little bit, please. Thank you, Ed. Um, as Ed mentioned, I'm a practicing psychiatrist in Atlanta, and I'm a lay theologian. Um, I've done that for, I've been working as a psychiatrist for 30 years, and as an EFM mentor for about 20. Um, and I walk alongside of people with this all the time, and I want, and I um, also, work as an advocate for people. And I just want to say, I believe in this work. I believe in the, uh, the discipline of the work. We have so much to learn. We all know that we have so much to learn and we have a lot to do as a community for access. But I do believe in this work. And um, so that's really where I come from as a, 
um, as a physician and as an advocate uh, for people to seek out treatment and, and for us to demand better access for all people. So that's part of where our advocacy can go. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I want to come back to you later to make a very important point that you emailed me in terms of the responsibility that faith communities have. Um, so we'll come back to you in just a few minutes about that. Now, Nisha, it's so nice to be with you in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit, you have a very personal connection with this issue and um, you too are a psychotherapist. I am. Um, yeah, I can start with my personal experience with it. Um, four years ago, um, my sister-in-law died by suicide. Um, she was 29 years old, 10, 29 years young, and um, have, I've faced many challenges in my young life, but that was really tough in that I found myself having to process my experience of being a licensed professional and losing a family member and having them die by suicide and really looking at that and what that means to me and what that's like for me. And um, so I've gone through many emotions as many survivors of suicide. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a daily and yearly journey um, when you have that experience. Um, there's constant triggers, um, even as being as a professional. Um, I like Dr. Boswell encounter um, clients, um, you know, who report suicidal ideation um, on a very normal basis. Um, and for the most part, um, we can do really great work. I've seen amazing things happen with people with suicidal and homicidal um, thoughts and have it completely transform. It's a beautiful thing when it does happen. So I do, I do believe in this work as well. And then every once in a while, you will have that client or two where just something in the back of your head as a professional, you worry just a little bit more um, about that person and you go through your checks and balances um, and, 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 and providing that ongoing regular care um, to until you know or have that sense that that client is where they need to be um, for their safety. Um, and I was also just having this discussion with um, my 11 year old on um, yesterday um, in recognition, realizing it's, you know, suicide awareness month and it's followed by a discussion with my spouse um, of that debate of when's it too early and how do we have this discussion with children, you know, are we romanticizing it? Are we normalizing it? But, you know, when my husband taught, we both, you know, realized that, you know, we were um, not oblivious to it as young kids. You know, I remember uh, the kid in my fourth grade class who we found hanging himself in the closet. Um, he was being bullied a lot. And this was fourth grade, you know, and or my 13 year old best friend um, who was hospitalized um, 
from following through an act. Um, so it was our personal decision, our personal, personal choice. But I think coming to terms and having that discussion that there were things going on that we didn't necessarily talk about with our parents, but we knew they were there. So thank you for letting me share this. I appreciate it. I want to come back and talk about how we talk with children about mm -hmm. this issue. I think that's going to be mm -hmm. really important. So we, we're going to talk about community. We're going to talk about seeking help. And we're going to talk about talking with children. I also uh, do want to just right now say that we've already corrected ourselves and uh, have in terms of the, the language we use. We're talking about uh, dying by suicide, not committing suicide. Um, because there's so much judgment um, that is attached to that earlier phraseology. And Steve, I don't know if you want to mention any of that, but uh, that may be later. But right now, what I'd love, if you don't mind, is to tell some of your story. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. I'm honored to be included with all these stories. Uh, yeah, I, I was in sixth grade the first time I heard the word suicide. There was a classmate um, who was being bullied and same thing, hung himself in his closet at home. We went to church together and school together. And um, a couple of years later, my mom's sister died by suicide. And she was, she was this bright light. She was, it, it was, I, I relate it in the sort of celebrity world to Robin Williams dying by suicide. What a shock that was. Um, she was this larger than life personality, just lit up the room and she died by suicide. Um, and then there's my own journey. And I was, I was 29. I was serving um, in the church. I had been a youth pastor and or a worship pastor for about 10 years. And I did not grow up in the Episcopal church. I am a recovering charismatic and Pentecostal and, um, it was highly stigmatized in those circles because we believed in prayers of faith. And if you just, if you didn't have enough faith, you know, that's where all of these issues came from. And it was a sin problem and all this just terrible toxic theology, fear-based theology that we would talk about. Um, and so we didn't talk about it at all. We didn't talk about mental illness because, um, in our world, it, it was a demon. There was a demon behind every bush. And so really, really scary, um, stuff and and so we we hid in the pews rather than talking about our our struggles and our pain and um, we didn't know anything about this wounded healer business so I was 29 um, staying in a hotel room two hours from home I'd lost my job my mental illness my anxiety and depression to be specific were just at a fever pitch and um, I got to the point where I thought I was doing everyone a favor by going away. If I could just disappear, this young, smart, capable, beautiful wife could start over. She was just 27. Uh, this little boy who would turn a year old the next day, he could find a normal uh, dad, which is such a terrible word, normal. Uh, Anne Lamott says normal is only a setting on a dryer. But I thought, you know, it, they could both just start over and have a, a fresh start if I just went away. And so that's what I tried to do. And uh, it's actually this month marks eight years uh, of recovery for me and um, stepping out of the house of fear and into the house of love, Reverend Bacon. 
and finding a God who is present with us. I wear this crucifix around my neck, not as a piece of jewelry, but to remind me that I have a suffering Savior that suffers with me, that hurts when I hurt, this, this Emmanuel that is present with me, and what a miracle every day is. And so I take my little white pill morning, noon, and night, and I say, this is my body broken for you. And I believe that God is present with us in the bread and in the wine and on the couch at the therapist's office, and it's changing my life. So there's hope. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you. Let's talk about therapy. Let's talk about reaching out and getting help. Um, Lisa, do you want to start there? And Anisha, who, who would like to kind of, whose heart is beating fast to talk about uh, getting help? While, while you're thinking about that, that, that's my story. I've told the story many times in sermons, but I was on the staff at St. Luke's as the youth minister. And one night, um, it was having some really tough times. And one night uh, came very, very close to driving over a cliff and knew I was in trouble and reached out, took, did a lot of research and found a psychiatrist who was just the balm and Gilead for me and stayed with him for eight years. And that became a turning point for my life of living the, the way I do. So um, let's... Uh, Dr. Boswell, do you want to talk about reaching out? Uh, and then Naomi, show you as well. Happy to start. You know, what I would say to anyone struggling with feelings of suicide is just reach out. Um, reach out somewhere. It can be, um, we're going to have a list of resources of numbers you can reach out to. Um, in our modern world, we have text and chat options and email mm -hmm. options. Any teacher, priest, minister, counselor, your family physician, just reach out. That's the place to start. Um, I think we all know any interface with the healthcare system can be really hard, right? To find the right person and the right access and all of that. We've, we've got to get that better. And um, I, I wanna acknowledge that that is not where it needs to be. But the most important thing for all people is just to reach out and start somewhere. Start with who you know. And, and so. Thank you. Nanisha, I wanted you to be here to, to represent TAC. Um, so whatever you want to say generically about uh, receiving help, not isolating, being in community, asking for help, but also the services that are offered by St. Luke's Training and Counseling Center. Sure. Yes. Thank you, Ed. So um, one of the things that uh, is on the forefront of my mind, um, I have the honor of working with the Georgia Crisis Line as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me that there are a lot of people who experience pseudo suicidal thoughts or what we call ideations um, who really want help. Um, and, you know, that, you know, we were always looking for the buffers, what we would call them, those things that kept them connected in some way, in some piece. And there's a reason why they reached out and made that phone call, first of all, you know, and just so if you like have a family member or friend 
that reaches out to you, there's a reason why they're telling you this. You know, there, there's, there's something within them that's still connected um, in some way, in some form or fashion. And, um, and, that's, and that's what we have to use and, and that can go a long way. Um, so yeah, I agree. Like what Dr. Bossel would say, there's so many different ways and avenues for, you know, people who are um, a little bit, you know, timid or so, or hesitant, you know, if you don't want to talk to somebody, you can chat or um, whether that be through texting or you can also chat online um, and, you know, or calling someone and just talking to a peer support warm line you know, the Georgia crisis line is staffed with licensed professionals 24 hours, seven hours, um, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, and they will also, you know, um, help people to move on to that next step. And you don't have to worry about finding a, a counselor or so or what resources are available. They would help you do that. Um, and in the same way, um, you know, TAC, you know, um, also provides those services of, you know, um, being able to be in that space with individuals who are um, challenged um, with these thoughts and these feelings and their family members. Um, you know, one of the things, I have a case management background before I even became licensed for several years. Um, and one of the things that I do with clients, if they call TAC and if for some reason um, something does not work out, you know, I'll say, well, what do you need? You know, what can I help you find? You know, and, and that is also there too. There are people out there that will spend their time helping you connect to the right resource. You don't have to know all the answers, you know, and I'll say, hey, like, hey try this resource right here. Try this resource. And they're like, wow, I wasn't expecting you to do all that. I don't feel like my job is complete. I don't have to schedule a session with you to get you started or to get you connected. That's the most important thing at the end of the day is that you're getting something out of this phone call. So that's where I start when clients reach out to us at TAC um, is meeting them where they are with fate, you know, and if we can make that happen at TAC, that's wonderful. Um, and if not, let me help you and get you connected uh, with another resource, you know, um, that can. Um, and we love to be, you know, very inventive if there's a group that we could form or, you know, um, if we see there's a need, we can do that, you know, for family members as well, if they feel like they need those resources, maybe they're struggling with um, how to support or, or get help for a loved one um, who's not reaching out. You know, we received a lot of those phone calls as well at the Georgia crisis line, spending time in, and just being in that space with family members who are, are feeling helpless and not knowing what to do once they do know that a family member is, is struggling and trying to, and to get them help and wondering how can I get them help. Um, so a lot of these resources that are mentioned is that um, everyone will receive. Um, there are people out there that are available and they're ready and they're waiting um, to talk to you. And I think that having this discussion, increasing the awareness in the community with all these um, which I look at first responders, um, and in a lot of sense, we are first responders, even when you're clergy of the church or so a lot, we can be in these situations where we become first responders and having these discussions and the awareness and 
Um, helping others recognize the signs or knowing how and when to get help is a great place to start. Thank you. I, um, everybody, we, we're going to list on our website all of these agencies and the telephone numbers and a lot of other resources in terms of books and articles that can really, really help with understanding and also with direct services. But before I move from you, Nanisha, to, to, um, to Steve, I do want to say how inspired I am that TAC, the Training and Counseling Center at St. Luke's, um, has not been seeing clients face-to-face since March, but you have yeah. been able to translate everything to the internet so that people can get services. Um, mm-hmm. It's You want to say anything else about that in terms of, that, that's really impressive. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, back in March, I think everybody can remember that week, right? Right. When we all realized what was happening and we took all took a deep breath and we were like, okay, we got this, we're, we're ready. And um, yes, we are still um, averaging almost 200 or sometimes over 200 sessions per month virtually right now um, at TAC. Um, in a lot of ways, um, it's helped us um, expand our services, right? Because folks don't have to drive um, um, in. Um, you know, folks can call us two, who live two hours away in Calhoun or anything like that um, and receive the service. Um, there were individuals who had limited um, transportation um, to get to TAC. Uh, we work with a very young population to a group of individuals um, that um, also had some barriers to coming into the office. And they're like, this is actually much easier than I can use my smartphone um, to contact you. And it really speaks to that generation as well. Um, they find it very uh, relatable. And, and we find that we could still um, maintain uh, that relational feeling um, even through video, it's still there. It's still present. Um, not much has really changed about that. You know, and of course, you know, there are some, you know, technology things here and there, right, that can occur. But overall, um, it's, an, it's a really a, an advantage and an amazing tool of being able to reach individuals, um, you know, and, you know, especially those who are in rural communities and did not have many counselors available locally that now they can do this. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for mentioning that. Absolutely. Steve, one of the things that impresses me about you so much, there are a million things that impress me about you, but one of them is that you are never silent about this. It's as if if this is a part of your recovery, of your life, to talk about this part. It's not the whole part of your life. But it's a very important. Can you talk about what motivates you to 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 talk openly? Yeah, sure. Thank you. What a wonderful question. Brene Brown says that shame cannot survive being spoken. So the more that we do exactly what we're doing, that's why I was so thrilled when you called, even though the heartbreaking reality is that we lost someone and, and that sort of launched us into this. But, but still, I, my heart burns with this desire to talk about it because, like I mentioned earlier, I hid in the pews for the first 30 years of my life. I was in church 
every time the doors were open and scared to death for anybody to know. I would, Ed, <laughs> I would pack, when I was working for the church, I would pack my prescriptions in my lunchbox. I would take the lunchbox into the staff bathroom, lock the bathroom door, lock the stall door and take my medicine in there because I was scared to death for somebody to find out that the youth pastor was taking crazy pills, right? Again, terrible word, but that's, that's what I was afraid of. And so now, <laughs> Oh man, we talk about reaching out and, and reaching out is so important. But what I've learned is you've got to have that sense of psychological safety first before you can ever think about reaching out. Reaching out is scary as all oh, get out. And so if I can show you my scars, if I can, if I can let you in on my wounds and then gently we can sort of ease into yours and it gives you the courage for the first time in your life, perhaps, to say, I'm not okay. I need help. Oh, my gosh. I, a suicide, I hate to say a suicide attempt was one of the best things that ever happened to me, but it's true because it gave me permission to tell the truth for the first time in my life. And I found on a psych ward what I wish more churches looked like around the globe. And it's this safe place where people are at the end of their rope and we can sit in a circle and talk about what makes us happy, sad, mad, glad. We can tell the truth. And I don't know that we always do a great job of telling the truth in our church circles. We do a real good job of, of dressing it up and using the right words and we know when to stand, sit and kneel. So I, I can't not talk about it because I, I hid it for 30 years and I don't want anybody to go through that. And that didn't work. It didn't um, work. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth and Horace, I'm counting all y'all to, to interrupt, but I'm gonna keep asking these questions and you know, just please interrupt. I, I wanna shift now okay. to, okay. We're, we're with you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to interrupt now because I think what Steve has said is just, as I was listening to him, it was just an entree for me to share a little bit about my story as a gay man. And part of what allowed me to have life is that I was able to know that there are other wonderful people in the church and beyond who are gay and lesbian and that there was nothing wrong with me. But when I was going through this feeling of shame and guilt and, and, and thought about not going on with my life, part of my salvation was being able to hear people talk about who they were and to give witness and that power of the narrative. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it takes a lot of that stigma and the taboo from it. And to let everyone know that yes, Melissa was a priest, but we all carry a cross. We all have crosses to bear, some heavier than others, and that we all are human. And so it is an opportunity for us to talk about how we can talk with each other and be supportive and, and look at mental health and depression and be able to be more sensitive to how we can be a better church, a better society with people who are going through that pain. 
And I think it's key to add right here too, that when somebody comes to you and they're hurting and you don't have that lived experience with mental illness, you don't have that lived experience with suicide or suicidal ideation. It's really important, I think, for us to give folks who are being encountered with this for the first time grace to say, hey, you don't have to be the expert. There are experts out there, right? We've got an expert on the line right now. but that you just have to be a safe person that Mm -hmm. hopefully you've got these resources that we're going to link to on the website that hopefully you can drive somebody to therapy, but I'm not a heart surgeon and I'm not ever going to try to, you know, open you up and do something like that. I I need to know my role and you need to know your role and, and hopefully your priest doesn't have to be your psychiatrist. Right. Um, But for us to know our role and be able to connect those dots is so vital. So I I just want to take the fear away if you're being encountered by a hurting person for the first time. So important. Yeah. Lisa, I want to come to you and and talk about resilience. So um, one of the the, uh, awarenesses I had in this conversation with the bishop and all the clergy the other morning, uh, yesterday, feels like a million years ago, was this business I'd never heard before about making sure that you are making deposits in your own resiliency bank account. What a wonderful metaphor. And then that was followed up by talking about the particularly heavy stressors all of us are living with during this pandemic. I mean, I have friends who are living alone and one, friend broke my heart. She says, I haven't hugged anybody in, and she named the number. And we need to talk about, can you just talk about that whole arena and then anybody else who wants to jump in? But Lisa, will you start there? Happy to start there, Ed. Now, one way we think about vulnerability to illness, and I know Elizabeth um, was part of our resiliency class that we did here at St. Luke's in May, which was just so much fun. I was um, going to give a plug for that. <laughs> it's um, one of my interests and passions, but think about a simple um, fraction where the, the numerator is your stress burden. That could be childhood stress burden, current stress burden, what's going on in your life, right? So your, your stress load on you as a person. The denominator are your uh, resiliency factors. And so some of that's genetic, right? We all know people who just seem to be able to handle all sorts of things and never get tired and never, you know, most people are not that way. We have um, your relationships, your community support, your self-care, your exercise, your nutrition, um, your, how are your habits around alcohol, other kind of um, substances that might be actually sucking resiliency energy away from you. So that's how I think about this. I'm not going to take away your stress and we can't deny stress, Um, but we can make that denominator a lot more robust. And that's where the church really has a lot to say. We can be a part of this resiliency base for you. And then that equates into vulnerability of illness. So if you have really robust resiliency, we can weather a lot. Um, And when we don't, 
uh, we can be vulnerable to the effects of all sorts of stress. So that's the way I think about it. Oh, that's so powerful. Uh, Nanisha, Steve, Elizabeth, Horace, chime in about resiliency, self-care, uh, increasing that denominator. Yeah, one of the things I'm not great about, but I remember um, learning, and I've learned it before, but relearning again in Lisa's class is paying attention to sleep and your sleep patterns. Um, and if your hygiene, your sleep hygiene is good, that helps to for your brain to recharge and reboot, and it helps um, all your different systems. So um, that's one of the areas I know if I'm not sleeping as much that I really need to start focusing on my resiliency. You and me both. And another thing for me is drinking plenty of water. Boy, if I start to get dehydrated, I feel my anxiety increase. It's ridiculous. I, I start feeling fatigued on top of that. I mean, these are basic things, but drinking enough water and eating your veggies, right? Like listen to your mama. She was right. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing that Dr. Boswell said that stood out to me was that vulnerability piece. And that's one thing that I would not doubt everyone here has experienced and with others during this pandemic has made us, all of us vulnerable. And, um, you know, so the resiliency that I think about is that connectedness, you know, um, also, you know, with the self care, how staying connected is so important and so key. Um, um, you know, as we saw that during the pandemic, I think everybody was just starving and thirsty for connection. Um, you know, through the isolation and, um, you know, everything else that we've experienced. And so, you know, folks start to cre be creative about how they stay connected, you know, even the church, you know, and, and how do we stay connected um, through everyone. And, um, and I think that's, you know, when Steve was sharing earlier about his experience, that stood out to me too, the connectedness of when he finally found that space of, you know, um, and that's why it's support groups, um, and, and, you know, the counseling and um, family counseling, um, so many of those things work um, because I think it, that also builds on that too. So I think there's a resiliency factor of things that we can do ourselves. And then that importantness of us feeling connected to other people, you know, so there's the internal piece, right, of learning how to feel connected with self and your mind and your body and your spirit and then building and extending that connection and being able to receive that from other people. I do want to underscore the importance of being connected to ourselves. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that we can be connected to ourselves is through our feelings and understand that our feelings are messengers. Yes. I, um, today, we, we're taping this on Tuesday for airing on Sunday morning. And um, I, represented the clergy um, church as people were coming out the personal prayer time in the nave. And um, it was so tough not to hug, so we did a lot of air hugging. Um, but a, a person came out and I was so, I said, oh, your tears are such sacraments of health because her mask that she had on had big tear uh, splotches. And she had just been moved to tears by being in that space. And I think 
for us to gift ourselves with going to spaces where we can be fully who we are with our feelings and to connect with them is such an act of self-care. Amen. Uh, yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Well, and part of mine is, uh, thank you, segue, is through my faith. My faith has been an anchor through all of those experiences of struggles that I've been able to turn to my faith and the power of prayer and connecting with family and friends have held me and enabled me to be resilient in times of great crises and trial. So I, I believe in self-care. I'm a pastoral care priest here. So I know I can't be my best for parishioners if I'm not my best. So I take time for gym and to take care of my physical, mental, emotional health, the spiritual aspect, as well as time away to re recreate to go on vacation, to change scenery, to take all that in, that feeds my spirit so that I can come back rejuvenated to do the work that God calls me to do. Thanks, I, I love to learn and so I oftentimes will register for a webinar, uh, too many of them, and the other day I got where I needed to fast from the screen. I needed a Zoom fast. And so I simply didn't go to two webinars that I had uh, registered for. I, I just, and, and I know people who are fasting from the news as an act of self-care. Yeah, Elizabeth? Yes. You're yes. testifying. <laughs> Got it. Since Horace oh, I, up, I did that. Um, I thought now with the hurricane, the possibility of hurricane, the fires in California, and I am probably a news junkie because I feel as a leader, I need to, to be aware and be informed. But this morning I said, I can't not take, I can't take it. With yeah. COVID, with the racial strife that's gone on, with the death of John Lewis and others and C.T. Vivian, and I just feel like I've become overwhelmed with that weight. And so we have to gauge ourselves and give ourselves permission to say, okay, I need a break. Yes. You know, Horace, one thing, um, I'll just share this briefly. Uh, one of our, our interlude books this year for our EFM program is Heschel's uh, seminal work on the Sabbath. I guess the title is Sabbath, and I've been reading it about, and I think that's what we're talking about in terms of the relationship between what the church has to say about this because yes, yes god god is waiting for us to restore and even in our care for each other right that's a different way of being than in the presence of god through these sacred times and uh it, it's very interesting that that's become um something we know about and it i think the church has a lot to say about that and, and to offer that we've been here before and this is still true and it's more important now than ever. Thanks for saying that, Lisa. I love the notion of Sabbath being that on Friday night, and it doesn't have to be Friday night, obviously, but sisters and brothers, that at a particular time, 
The candles catch the flame of the match and you stop work for 24 hours because no matter how hard you work, you'll never be enough. You'll never have, you will never get the work done. So you, God wants you to rest the way. So we've got to wrap this up, but I don't want to wrap it up yet until Lisa, you talk about that really wonderful thing. Horace mentioned faith and you can't, I think, talk about faith without community. So what is the role, what is the voice, what is the message that the community needs to be saying about depression and suicide? Yeah, one of the things we know about suicide is that the culture can really be significant on, on people's behavior. And I say that not in any way in judgment because there are um, many people, we've done, families have done everything possible. So I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about a culture that says we believe in hope, we believe in the restoration of illness, we believe in treatment, we believe in the um, inextricable links that we have with each other that we can't even see, and our future selves. And I, so I think it's really important to speak to this and to speak firmly that we believe in life, in your future life, in hope and restoration. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed in this world. That is our tradition, right? So, right, right. So that, that's, that's what we say. And I think for those of you who've been there and can speak to what's on the other side of these transient moments of illness. And um, so that I would just invite the church to claim this uh, more firmly, especially for our youth. And, and um, you mentioned in the email to me, the word stay. Yeah, it's been on my mind. There's, there's a great book um, that I've read and I picked it up again after our conversations. Um, Jennifer Hecht, I believe is her name. And so it's a history little bit of the the history and the different philosophies and positions around suicide but she is very firm about this that part of a healthy community is to remind people these are transient moments and that we can get beyond it and to really normalize that but to ask people to stay um, that we need you and we need you in ways we don't even know and um, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had, all of us have had it here, where um, we can look back at a particular moment and recognize it as just that crisis point of illness, the way you would chest pain before a heart attack or excruciating abdominal pain before you needed some surgery, right? That's what suicidal ideation is. It's an illness. It's a symptom. So we we will get beyond it, but to really speak to the value of every human being. That's what we're about. Wonderful. So, you know, um, in the last two days, um, I've received phone calls from several of my um, sister clergy women um, as we just start to reach out to each other and say, hey, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. How are things going? Um, 
And this has not just been in the Diocese of Atlanta, it's folks from outside of the diocese calling in. And so going back to having somebody else say, you're important to me and I just wanna check in with you, that that is so, so very vital, even when we aren't aware that that's what we need. Um, and going back to what Nanisha was saying about connection and really, especially in this time of pandemic, like. There are so many different ways that we may feel isolated, but we can connect to each other. We can, you know, reach out over Zoom or FaceTime or um, call them up old fashioned on the phone. Um, yeah. And that, that really, um, those, those moments when people reach out and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. How are you doing? That that, that can just that simple word, those yep. simple phrases can drastically change where a person is. Um, Let's go around and let each of you have the last word. Um, things that you are uh, going to help us put on the website, if you'd talk about that. But any other word about this whole area that you want to file with us? And Steve, when we come to you, I do want to say that I hope you will well, this is up to you, whether or not you give your Twitter account, because you sure. have some awfully important posts about suicide that I find to be very, very helpful. But thank uh, you, Manisha, can we start with you? Um, yes, we, thank you. You must yeah. have felt that I was eager to say something. <laughs> I, could feel, I, could, I could feel you. I could feel you. Yes, indeed, I could feel you. Well, you I mean, what, my heart was beating when um, Elizabeth was just sharing about her um her sister group and i was just thinking about help for the helpers um is so is so important as well um you know um uh just in this work that we do that is so beautiful um and so spiritual um you know getting that help that we need for ourselves um and just in staying connected like with tac we meet once a month um, you know, as therapists and checking in with each other with a two hour meeting. Um, and uh, we look forward to that because that's our connection. Um, and then TAC, TAC has an active clergy support group as well. Um, you know, we work a lot with student seminarians, but we also have um, support for individuals who have already been in ministry um, for a while. And the second thing that I um, just wanted to bring up, you know, one of the, the, the other key things of why I initiated that conversation with my son um, is just being aware that, you know, sometimes, you know, no matter the age, even children, sometimes they feel like they don't have someone to talk to or even like their parents won't understand and, you know, start thinking, you know, what if my child has, those, has one of those moments or has a friend come to them and, um, you know, shares something, you know, so important or contemplates these thoughts. I don't think he would know what to do with that. And that was what drove me to have that conversation very candidly with my son um, in talking about, you know, uh, we talked about fortitude because he's in this group called Fortitude. And we talked about defining that and what that means and how he can use that um, even as a kid and, you know, and God would be pleased uh, in that courage to speak out 
um, through your pain or someone else's pain and directing them to a resource of someone who they can trust and can help them. And at the end of the day, I share with my kids all the time, you know, society will make you think that so many things and the American dream is so important. But at the end of the day, it's not your grades that matter or what kind of job that you get. It's your purpose and your meaning and understanding why you were chosen and placed on this earth. And that's what I'm instilling and in in, in, in these children right now and in, in helping them get that now. Of regardless of what you're going to see out there, um, what's the real purpose and the reason of why you are here? Um, because when you realize that and you know that and you could grasp that, it is so fulfilling, you know. I think you've uh, just saved several, several, several lives just by saying that. And I do want to take you up on this offer. Uh, and, I, and I'm here to testify that this is the case with TAC. Uh, Nanisha said that if several people need a group and they've not thought about that kind of group at TAC, call them. They'll invent a new way to have a group. They sure will. <laughs> That's the case. Steve, how about you? What are your last thoughts, brother? Boy, I'm just filled with gratitude. My goodness, this is beautiful. Um, boy, a few things. One, um, Nanisha, you mentioned um, help for the helpers. Uh, I shared in our chat box, and, and I'll make sure this gets added to our list of resources, but Dr. Holly Oxhandler, who's the Associate uh, Dean of Social Work at Baylor, has created a free seven-day self-care for helpers challenge. It's just an email-based challenge. She started a couple of weeks ago. I've gone through it, and it's wonderful. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, talking about kids, I have two little ones of my own who think Ed Bacon hung the moon, by the way, but my two I'm in that same boat. I'm going, you know, I'm very public. My story's all over the internet. My son is nine years old. I want to catch this before he finds daddy's story. Uh, there is this wonderful series of books, a kid's book about fill in the blank. And there's a kid's book about depression. And it talks about it in such wonderfully appropriate ways. So you can check out a kid's book about series uh, online if you've got little ones or you're around kids. The, I guess my final thought would be this. I was, it was day three in ICU. I was numb from the waist down. I uh, had taken quite an, a, a massive amount of, of medication. And they weren't sure if my liver was going to make it. And uh, my wife and best friend had been there, but they had gone home because my little boy was having a one-year-old birthday party. And you only have a one-year-old birthday party one time. And so I'm laying there in that bed. It's cold and dark and I'm all by myself and I'm not sure that I want to live yet. And I felt this warm hand on my chest as real as if your hand was on my chest right now. And you can say, boy, those were some good drugs if you want to. But I heard this inaudible voice. Ed, you and I have talked about this. This inaudible voice that said, I'm not finished with you yet. And I know it was God because I never would have said something so kind to myself at this stage in my life. I hated myself. I wanted to die. I fully intended to die. I was hopeless. And God showed up in that room with me and said, your story's not over. And so I just want to say to whoever's watching from wherever you're watching, 
that your story's not over, that God is with you, God is for you, God is love, everything about love, that is God and there is hope and there are wonderful professionals out there who will help. There are all sorts of wonderful medications that can help your brain work the way it was designed to work. If it's not doing that right now, please don't give up. Please stay. And your Twitter account? Do you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter, blog, everything, Instagram, Facebook, it's all at I am Steve Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I'm just blown away. Thank you, Steve. That is such a gift. Such a gift. Um, Final words. You know, There is hope. There is recovery. And I have seen that happen in other family members and with friends. I'm so sad for the amount of pain that she was in. And I want people to hear that recovery is possible. And so so please stay. Stay and be with us. Thank you. Horace? Well, I'm also sorry we lost Melissa. And I think that the gift she gives us is an opportunity for us to have this conversation, to hear each other, to be encouraged, uh, for us to go on in a way that the gift was not there for her. So I, I thank Steve for that word. And three things I want to share. One, the term I have been encouraged by a parishioner not to use the term social distancing, but physical distance, because we need to stay socially connected. So instead of saying social distancing, I say physical distancing. The second is, I think there is a lot of unfortunate theology around suicide. Most of us, if not all of us, grew up with, this is the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. This is what God will not forgive. Uh, I reject that. We do not teach that. We teach uh, big love and that God's love and grace is full and that uh, Melissa is in God's embrace now and that we can get beyond that stigma. That is my hope, that through these conversations, through study, we can have a more compassionate attitude by those who are struggling with depression, with mental illness, with our own story, and use our own struggles as a way of um, reaching others, a wounded healer. So that's the second thing. And the final thing is, I wanna share Iris Bolton's book, who is local. She started the Atlanta-based organization survivors of suicide, and it is Voices of Healing and Hope, Conversations on Grief After Suicide. And there's also a DVD in this as well. So I highly commend this. Thank you, each, every one of you, for your story, for your wisdom, for your sharing, for your vulnerability, for your decision not to have uh, assert itself in any way. Uh, you've enriched our lives. Anybody who's watching, thank you for being with us. 
you can go to our website and download all of these resources. And we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you. Bye-bye.